Hello, and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Zararis. This is the Monday episode. After an interesting weekend in sports, the NBA All-Star Game and uh, Dunk Contest, Three-Point Shootout Skills Contest were on Sunday night. The NBA threw all those together. Pretty full slate of hockey, both Saturday and Sunday. Spring training in Major League Baseball. Nothing major happening in the football universe. Getting a little bit closer to the NFL draft. A few weeks away from the return of Formula One season. Kyle Larson uh, won the race Sunday afternoon at Las Vegas. Mile and a half track. The Blue Blood teams like like Joe Gibbs, like Hendrick, Stuart Haas. Those are the teams you expect to see perform well at the mile-and-a-half tracks, which are so reliant on horsepower, not a ton of downforce on those cars. Makes it really hard to pass, makes it really hard to make up ground. You get stuck behind those air pockets. And even if you're running really fast laps, it's really hard to catch up. But today's episode is not one sport-specific, but it's one sport-specific for the references and examples I'm going to use. The topic I'm exploring for today's episode is how teams evaluate where they are. And when I say where they are, I mean in the pecking order. If you listen to Friday's episode, which I highly encourage you do, I was with Chris Schweitzer, we were talking about Major League Baseball, where teams find themselves in the pecking order, whether they're bona fide contenders, they have holes, they're in the middle, or they're rebuilding, that is the core part of today's episode. I want to talk about the decisions that go into how a team decides where they are and what they sh- their decision-making process should look like going forward. And I'm talking about it specifically in a hockey sense because there's a lot more stuff out there right now in the media, whether you want to talk about stuff that's been in The Athletic and TSN on Sportsnet. We're getting relatively close to the NHL trade deadline. It's about two weeks away, but a lot of teams are going to have to start making decisions sooner rather than later because of the required quarantine stuff between guys who have to go from state to state to join a new team in a trade. You have to have X number of days of negative COVID tests before you're allowed to join a team for practice and to play. And if you're going from the United States to Canada or vice versa, there's a two-week quarantine period. So if a team in Canada wants to make an addition to their roster, they're going to have to do it sooner rather than later because if you make a trade that features anyone on your roster going the other way to a team in the States for a roster player, you are going to be with that hole in your lineup for like two weeks. I mean, we saw it with the Winnipeg Jets when they traded for Pierre-Luc Dubois from the Columbus Blue Jackets. He had to sit out for 12 days before he could join the team for practice. And because he sat out for so long, yeah, he was able to exercise, but not in a game setting. He had to stay in isolation. He was able to work out like stationary, static, and dynamic exercising in a hotel room. But that's not the same thing as skating with the team, practicing, and using exercise equipment. And he got hurt pretty quick right after he got back into the lineup because he hadn't been in a game situation for a while. And As we get closer to that trade deadline, there are a few names out there. There are a few teams who are are in positions where they could stand to either add some pieces or there are a few teams, and these are the main teams I want to talk about, teams that realize they are not particularly close to being a, a deep playoff team 
So they're more inclined to trade away some veteran guys, some guys with years remaining on contracts, or some guys on expiring contracts to get future assets to start thinking about the long term because that's the smart asset management when it comes down to it. You don't want to waste guys and let them leave in free agency as unrestricted free agents without getting anything for them if you're not going to win a Stanley Cup. If you think you can win a Stanley Cup this year, by all means, let a guy play out the remainder of his unrestricted year. And if you win the Cup and let a guy walk in free agency, that's an easy explanation to make to everyone else, that you didn't want to give a guy a long-term extension because you didn't feel like he would be worth it going forward. But if you did that in the name of we could win a Cup this year, but we don't have the financial flexibility going forward, we got to keep this guy for right now. That's a reasonable and rational roster decision. But if you are a team that is in that soggy middle that might sneak into the playoffs as a lower seed, maybe you'd be better off turning that roster play into some future assets. Before I play a little drop and get to the content, please, please, please subscribe if you are on Apple Podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts, go to the landing page for our show. Scroll all the way to the bottom, past episode one. There are five clear stars on the screen. Hit the one that is the fifth from the left. So one, two, three, four, five. Leave a five-star review. And then if you're so inclined, please go below that and hit write a review. And leave a written review in the comments. I would appreciate it. If you're on Spotify, hit the little follow button. If you're on SoundCloud, Google Play, Audio Boom, Stitcher Radio, any other podcasting platform, hit that little follow button, please. Now that I got that out of the way, I will see you guys on the other side of this drop, and we're going to talk a little bit about asset management in the sports world. And with that, I'm going to jump right on into it. This is not a episode that is specific to hockey, but the principles I am taking here from the real world, from the hockey world, can be applied to any sport when it comes to asset management. When I refer to players as assets, I mean it strictly from a general manager, decision maker, team president perspective. I do not mean these are not people. Got to get that in there. Just when you are building a team, you cannot allow human emotion to influence your decisions because you are sometimes inclined to give guys the benefit of the doubt, even if they are not inclined to do so. If someone is dramatically underperforming or overperforming and you allow that to influence how you're making your decisions, you sometimes leave yourself vulnerable to getting caught, to believing in an outlier level of production as opposed to a statistical average level of production, which is what you should be basing your decisions off of. It it is not a coincidence that you get so many bad contracts coming off of guys who are hitting free agency because anecdotally, I will say, it does certainly seem like people who reach unrestricted free agency in any sport, they always seem to have career years when they're about to hit the open market. Whether or not that is, you know, 
true based on the large-scale statistical record, I don't know, because I would have to go and do the research, and that would be a large number of variables just based on the sheer volume of people across sports who hit free agency. But that is our baseline here. We want to manage our roster as well as possible. The key principle here when we're talking about roster building is understanding the state of our team. Are we a legitimate championship contender? Are we a piece or two away from being a championship contender where we're, all we need is another player, whether it's a forward, a winger, or a goalie in hockey? We need another 3 and D guy if we're in the NBA. We need another starting pitcher if we're in baseball. We need another corner. We need a receiver. We need a tight end. Whatever it may be in football, how close are we? And then the tier below that, that one piece away, is the I don't know, we might be able to get into the playoffs, but we don't really have championship aspirations right now. We're either extremely young or we're over the hill, but we're not ready to blow it up yet. Or we're still acquiring young pieces and we'll be happy to go as far as we can in the playoffs. And then there are the teams that are just outright rebuilding. And a lot of the time, a team does not realize they're outright rebuilding until it is already too late. And this is going to lead me to one of the things I want to talk about is sunk cost. In the football world, the easiest example I can make based on sunk cost is what the Arizona Cardinals did with Josh Rosen and Kyler Murray. The Arizona Cardinals used a pick in the top 10 of the draft on Josh Rosen, the quarterback from UCLA. A lot of people were pretty high on him. I was one of them. I was very impressed with his level of play at UCLA on a team that was not particularly talented. He managed to keep that team competitive. His comeback against Texas A&M is something I'm going to remember the rest of my life because I live bet that game at halftime. And Josh Rosen balled out. I really thought Josh Rosen was going to be good at the NFL level. He went on to that team with Steve Wilkes as the head coach. Wilkes is a defense first, a defense guy. He has a defensive background. He was the head coach of that team. And the Cardinals had one of the worst offenses of the last 20 years in the NFL. Rosen did not look comfortable. He wasn't throwing to particularly good wide receivers. He did not have a particularly well-schemed offense. He didn't have ample time in the pocket to make throws. He had guys make drops. And the Cardinals thought to themselves when they had the first overall selection the following year, Kyler Murray is better than Josh Rosen right now. If we can get anything for Josh Rosen, we are better off having Kyler Murray and whatever asset we can get back for Josh Rosen than having Josh Rosen and a pass rusher or a corner or an offensive lineman. That was the year Nick Bosa went second overall to the 49ers. And while I think Nick Bosa would have definitely helped the Arizona Cardinals, deciding that, no, Josh Rosen isn't the answer, and even though we used a high-value draft pick on him, we need to get better at the quarterback position because the quarterback is the most important position on our team, and we will have to just eat the cost. Whatever we're, whatever it costs us, if we get a second-round pick, a third-round pick, whatever we get for Josh Rosen, that's fine, but Kyler Murray is better than Josh Rosen, and that is important. Too many teams, especially in the NHL, are unwilling to admit when they've made a mistake on a player, and they do not move on from said player until it is already too late, when they have already actively cost your team based on the performance they've given you. So I want to talk about teams right now 
that are in that state of flux. The things I have written down on my outline here are, how do you know how your team is playing? And hockey specifically, you will often see a coach get fired when a team has either bad goaltending or bad shooting percentage. And I point out those two stats specifically because those are stats that have a high number of variables that go into calculating them, and it can lead to fluky results in short term, especially this year, especially in the 2021 NHL season, because the season is only 56 games. In a two-week span, you play 10 games, 8 games, in 14 days. That's close to a seventh of your season in, you know, a two-week stretch. You have a bad two weeks as a coach, even if it's just your goalie performing poorly, you're out the door. We saw it in Montreal. That Canadians team at 5-on-5 five five was elite. The Canadians were first in expected goals for and second in expected goals against going into the week before Claude Julien got fired. Yes, Carey Price has a goal sa- a save percentage below 900, meaning less than 90% of saves, which, for reference... The league average for saves as a goaltender is 910 or 91%. Carey Price, who, you know, decorated hockey player, won the Vesna and the Hart in the same season, probably will be the starting goalie for Canada in the Olympics next year because of stubbornness. He is underperformed this year, and Montreal has a competent backup in Jake Allen. They're paying $15 million for the goalie position, the most of any team in the entire league, and still... Mark Bergevin, the general manager of the Canadians, fired the head coach, Claude Julien, because the the Canadian special teams was not performing well. When I say special teams in hockey, I mean the power play and the penalty kill. And even though they were performing extremely well at even strength, whether you want to look at expected goals or chances for and against, they let Claude Julien go. And based on pretty much just bad goaltending, when it, it cuts down to it, and that tells me something about Montreal's state of mind. That leads me to believe, Mark Bergevin believes, the team he has as it's assembled, or if it needs one or more pieces in a trade, he feels like they're pretty close to being able to win a Stanley Cup with the roster they currently have. You fire a coach for a few different reasons in the hockey world. It can be as a shot in an arm for a team that is underperforming. Think about the Blues, firing Mike Yo in the middle of November to promote Craig Ruby, who was an assistant at the time, and then they went on to win the Stanley Cup without making any significant additions at the trade deadline. That is the example of a coach being a shot in the arm, where the voice in the locker room just isn't working for the guys on the team right now. They need someone to change the tone, to change the culture, change the attitude of the players in the room. And... All it needs is a little bit of a vibe change. That is one. There's also the version where a team fires a coach because the statistical record is not there. That is an example of what we could potentially see in Buffalo, where a team had particularly high expectations for a team coming into the season. When I say a team had high expectations, I'm referring to the executives, general manager, president, owner. They felt like, The team was assembled for one thing, and the coach is underperforming those expectations, so he's got to go. 
The example for that would be what happened with Vegas uh, two years ago where they fired Gerard Gallant and then hired Peter DeBoer, who was fired by the San Jose Sharks a couple of weeks before. That is another example. But that is one of the things you can do as an executive when you don't have the assets to make a trade that can drastically improve your roster or you feel like you're not that far away, but you want to see what a shot in the arm to a pretty talented group already has. Those are some things you have in your toolbox as an executive. How much change will a coach make? Is this new coach someone who's going to bring the temperature down in your room? Is everybody really tense and stressed out? And this is the guy who's going to loosen everyone up so they can play better? Is this the guy who's going to bring in a better system to get the most out of the players you currently have on your roster? That's one thing you have. Then you come into other things. You can talk about making roster moves, whether it's trades, whether it's picking up someone off of waivers, whether it's promoting someone from your AHL team. These are all moves for teams that are not certified contenders but feel like they're not that far away. When we talk about teams evaluating themselves about where they are in the pecking order, there's a few different ways teams do this. Some teams will intentionally lower expectations. The example I will give for this is my New York Rangers. Coming into this season, the president of the team, John Davidson, said, we do not have a playoff mandate for David Quinn. If we make the playoffs, that would be nice, but we do not expect to make the playoffs, even though the roster they have is reasonably talented. They've had a really bad case of the injury bug, the Artemi Panarin situation where he had to take a leave of absence based on reports of domestic... I can't even say it's domestic violence because it wasn't someone he was related to or involved with, but abuse of a woman, it's been refuted, it's being painted as a political sphere by people in the know, whether it's the Rangers themselves, who I've been dubious when they've made claims in situations like this, or reporters around the league who are more inclined to believe, don't believe that Panarin actually did this. So that's neither here nor there, but I have to mention that when I say why Panarin isn't with the team. But the Rangers came into the season with a pretty talented roster in a tough division. I expected them to finish somewhere on the playoff bubble, whether they were fifth, whether they were sixth, or if they managed to sneak into that fourth spot. I wouldn't have been totally surprised. That would have told me that the young guys on the team, like whether it was Kako, Lafreniere, uh, Adam Fox, what have you, whoever it was, Filipino even, popped off. They had really strong seasons. They got production from places in the lineup they didn't last year. And that was the difference between an okay team and a playoff team. You can also have a situation where you're someone like the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Vegas Golden Knights, the St. Louis Blues, one of those teams that already has a ready-set roster, and you don't have to tell anyone your intentions because everyone else knows you're ready to go. You have a ready-made roster that can contend for a Stanley Cup on opening night. If you want to bolster an already strong team at the trade deadline, you're free to do that like Tampa Bay did last year when they traded for Blake Coleman and Barkley Goudreau. They went on to win the Stanley Cup with those guys, playing really nice job on the third line. You can be that kind of team. Then we start trickling down where you end up in that that soggy middle is the way it's described amongst people in my sphere of the world who 
don't mince their words when they're talking about sports teams. These are the teams that people often like to call pretenders in the conventional media. That's something that's really a big on sports talk radio when you're talking about the football season, where after about eight, nine weeks, you really feel like you have a temperature on where teams are. Are they contenders or pretenders? I don't necessarily mean this in a derisive way. I mean it in a sense that they might give the appearance of a Stanley Cup team that they feel like they could win a cup, but they're giving that for public perception and to the guys on their own teams. They are talented. They definitely can make the playoffs, but they don't necessarily have the talent to go all the way once you get to the postseason. And there's nothing wrong with being one of those teams where you're a younger team and you want to get your uh, some postseason experience and you're going to come up against a really good veteran team in a first round or a second round. And you think if everything goes perfectly right, you maybe win two rounds in the playoffs, you get to a conference final, and you play a really talented team and you get your doors blown off, and that's fine. But wholesale, these teams in this tier are good enough to make the playoffs, but not good enough to win a Stanley Cup. And that comes into what one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is just how honest is an NHL team with the expectations they have with the public versus what they have in-house. Because there are teams that go into every single season insisting to their fan base, they think they can make the playoffs, and if everything breaks their way, they can win a Stanley Cup, when that's really not the case. You look at some of the teams that made the playoffs last year and went on deep runs. The one I'll use that's the easiest example is the Vancouver Canucks, where on no planet in any universe did the Vancouver Canucks think they were going to get to the Western Conference Finals last year. Jim Benning might might try and pull that off. Travis Green, their head coach, might try and say that, but that's just not the reality. They got superhuman goaltending from Thatcher Demko and strong production out of their top six, whether it's Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, Quinn Hughes, and there are always those teams that over-exceed expectations. They perform better than people thought they would, and that's always part of the playoff story, but As an executive, a general manager, you cannot realistically bank on your team being the team that rides goaltending to a Stanley Cup because goaltending is so fickle. So many things go into how your goaltender plays. There are so many variables. That's why there's such a wide variance, and it's really hard for goaltending to carry over year to year, even if it's the same exact goalie. Whether you want to talk about what's going on in Vancouver the first half of the season, you talk about what's going on in Montreal with Carey Price, good goaltenders can have bad years on flukes. And I'm not saying it in a mean way, a disrespectful way, but good goalies can have bad seasons and then have fine seasons the year after. The the perfect example is what happened with Marc-Andre Fleury, where Pittsburgh felt like he was kind of over the hill after they had won multiple Stanley Cups with Matt Murray doing a bulk of the lifting in net for them, and they put him up there for Vegas to take in the expansion draft, and had an okay, a pretty good first year, an okay second year. They went and traded for Robin Lehner, and... Laners missed the first half of this season, the shortened 2021 season, 
And Marc-Andre Fleury has the best goals saved above expected in the entire league. And that's in spite of Vegas having a pretty bad defense. So you, you get an understanding that it's possible for goalies to find their way, to lose their way, and the variance is high and low. That's why I say you can't bank on your team's goaltending being the deciding factor in a playoff series, a reason for you to win a Stanley Cup. It's a factor in your roster evaluation that you feel like because you have a good goaltender, you can win a Stanley Cup, but if a goalie is your best player, it is extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to win a Stanley Cup, and it's almost, I don't want to say it's impossible, but because of how offensive-oriented today's NHL is, it's as close to impossible until there's a rules adjustment in some way in favor of defense, and that might never happen again because it's better for the league if offenses are more empowered, whether it's more penalties, easier to score with a bigger net, that kind of thing. So some of this ultimately comes down to how honest you are with the public, your fan base, and that kind of thing, where it's a double-edged sword, where if you tell your fan base that, hey, we're rebuilding, our expectations are kind of low this year, we've traded away some veterans that you know we we know you guys love and have had good memories with, but we think that going forward we'd be better off having draft picks to acquire some better younger players so that eventually we can be a contender again, as opposed to waiting for these guys to be unproductive or for them to leave. You buy yourself time if you're honest with your fan base. I do understand there is some hesitancy to admit to the general public that, hey, we got to rebuild. What we have right now isn't working, and our ceiling isn't high enough where we feel like we can contend, where even if we get some good breaks, we could still win a cup. If you are close, but you know you're running out of time, you are better off sometimes blowing it up and deciding to trade away a veteran and get some draft picks or some prospects even. Putting together a quality team is not easy. It takes time. It is not a single or two-year process if you wholesale blow it up. The Rangers took the better part of three years to really put together some semblance of a talented lineup and even then the rangers as they're currently constructed aren't a particularly good hockey team the senators blew it up after their 2017 eastern conference run and are no closer to being a playoff team than they were they have some nice pieces in the pipeline but a lot of their projected and hopeful success is based on talent talent development how good are the guys that you drafted and traded for going to be in the not-so-distant future, and that is daunting for some teams, and it is why some teams will just live in denial about the state of their team and hold on to guys for too long when they, once they become unproductive, and then you're stuck with someone. At some point, a guy becomes a negative asset, where you're going to have to give something away with them for another team to take them. The perfect example for this is Mark Stahl when he was on the Rangers, where they had Mark Stahl for a number of years. He'd had a multitude of pretty bad injuries, the concussions, the eye injury, lost a lot of his mobility, lost a lot of his 
peripheral vision where it made it harder for him to make reads, harder for him to skate. And the Rangers held on to him for too long, where they probably would have been better served trading him when he was up for free agency and getting some younger guys in the pipeline. Instead, they held on to him for so long, they had to give away a second-round pick with him for the Red Wings to take him. And that is a waste of an asset. When you are a team that is rebuilding, you shouldn't be giving away draft picks. And the Rangers insist they're still rebuilding, so giving away a second-round pick for a team to take on Mark Stahl is a net negative. You would rather have that second-round selection because you need every single draft pick because the draft is not rocket science. There is not a formula for you to turn a player you select in the draft into a bona fide NHL player. There are things you can do to help them along the way, but because, you know, draft picks are living, breathing things, they have acclimation periods. They gotta get used to playing at a higher level. They have to get used to the style of play of the team that selects them. They have to grow into their bodies. When these guys are selected, they're only 18, 19 years old. They're physically small. They have to bulk up. They have to improve their conditioning. They have to acclimate their game from the amateur level to the professional level. When you talk about a lot of these guys, it's important to remember, growing up on a lot of these guys' teams, when you're talking about them in their junior years, their minor hockey years, their amateur years, they're the best player on the team, and for a lot of the time, they have the puck on their stick. They do not know how to play without the puck on their stick, and it's why, a lot of the time, once guys who are drafted pretty highly, they struggle a little bit at the NHL level, is they don't know what to do away from the puck. They don't know where to be to receive passes. They don't know where to look to pass the puck. They don't know where they should be shooting from, where they should be passing, where they should be dumping from. All of these things are part of that learning process for younger players, and I understand that all of that goes into the decision-making process for these organizations, where if you're a team that still has a lot of highly paid, expensive players, you're not really inclined to blow it up because you feel like all you need is one or two more guys in a free agency period, and you're right back in the mix. You look at a team like the Nashville Predators, who's been rumored to be shopping guys that they're open for business, what have you. When you look at Nashville's roster, it's not bad. Roman Yossi's a top 10 defenseman in the entire league. Ryan Ellis is one of the best second-pair defensemen in the entire league. Philip Forsberg is a pretty talented player. Matthew Shane is a very talented player when he's right. Ryan Johansson is a pretty good player. They have Eli Tolvanen, who's a prospect they've been high on. Robbie Fabro, who they've been pretty high on. There's a number of players on that team. But at the same time, you're looking at a team that's pretty much dead in the water in that central division where they have no real path to making the playoffs, and they've been rumored to be shopping people. They waited too long. The Predators made the Stanley Cup final four years ago when they lost to the Penguins, and they've gone the wrong direction ever since. They went out of their way to acquire some guys, to give some guys extensions, and they caught themselves in that soggy middle where the guys they gave the long-term contracts to were a little bit older, they underperformed those contracts, they restricted their roster mobility, they weren't able to make trades, they kind of hamstrung themselves because they've tied themselves to just a handful of guys, whether you want to talk about Duchesne, Pekka Rene, Ryan Johansson, and it's not to say those guys didn't give you strong, serviceable 
careers. I know they gave Matthew Shane that contract when he was a free agent, but when they did that, they felt like they were still a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. So from that perspective, it's understandable why you did it, even though even at the time I disagreed with the contract because it was never go he was never going to live up to that contract. And I say it every single time I reference it on this show, but it's called the free agency tax. When a guy reaches unrestricted free agency, they are always going to get more money than they are worth because they've reached unrestricted free agency for the first time in their career, and they feel entitled to make more money than they're worth because teams are going to be willing to give it to them because it's so hard to get quality players. Part of that process is a realization period, and a lot of these guys, these general managers, they understand that they have very small margins for error. You only get four, five years if you're lucky. The typical shelf life for a general manager in the NHL is about four and a half, five years. Same thing, it's about that time in the NBA, about that time in the NFL, that kind of thing. The baseline, the room for error, it's pretty standard across all their, all the sports. It's all within that... It's somewhere between like 3.8 to 5.2, depending on the sport. Some sports are a little more hesitant to fire their guys than others. But generally speaking, these are very hard jobs to get. There are only, you know, 125, 26 in the, all four sports in North America. There's a very small margin for error. You mess up a general manager job badly enough, you never get another chance. And that is why these guys are so hesitant, so conservative, and so willing to just let the cards lay as they fall, not be too assertive, let things happen, and see where they go from there. And that inherently leads to conservative roster decisions where you're inclined to give guys time to figure out mistakes because you've tied yourself to those guys. Where someone like David Poyle probably should have realized the Predators weren't that close going into the summer. They signed Matthew Shane to that long-term extension because Pekka Rene was getting older, because they had some prospects in the pipeline they felt confident about, and those guys would command significant salaries. So maybe let's get a mid-tier free agent, someone who makes only $6 million a year, $5.5 million a year, as opposed to someone who gets nine, and give ourselves more roster flexibility going forward. That realization process that, hey, this isn't working as it is, we need to change something, is not easy for these people to come to. I'm sure Mark Bergevin of the Canadians, it took him a while to come to the decision that he needed to fire Claude Julien, his head coach, because he'd gotten decent results out of Claude Julien. Julien's teams always have strong underlying numbers. They play strong, fundamental, system, systemic hockey that's sustainable. And that is your goal. You want your guys to be able to play a certain style of hockey that creates more chances than the other team and doesn't give up as many chances as you're creating. You want more chances than the others, and that's something Claude Julien has historically done, whether you talk about his first tenure in Montreal, dating back to the last two decades ago, like the mid-2000s, like 05, 06, 07, or his tenure in Boston where he won a Stanley Cup, and his second tenure in Montreal where even though they haven't given him some talented rosters, he's gotten decent results out of them at even strength because he knows what he's doing. He's a good hockey coach. Circling back around, part of this realization process is acknowledging you messed up. And that 
is, I think, one of the main reasons so many general managers are hesitant, regardless of sport, to make a change, to go dramatic when it comes to rebuilding your roster, to trade your proven veteran guys for prospects and draft selections, to cut expensive players if you're talking about football or the NBA where you'll wave a guy and let him be a mid-level exception on another team because you need that space. In salary cap sports, you need as much flexibility as possible, and it's an asset. You want to have as much room as possible to make additional roster moves, and I understand general managers don't want to admit they messed up, and it's why they're hesitant to do so, but I'll point... I mean, I hate to keep circling back to them, but for all of my complaints about Jeff Gordon, the Rangers general manager, as a talent evaluator, understanding like what makes for a good player at certain positions... He understand he understood that when he got that job in 2016, 2017, the Rangers, as they were assembled, were an aging core. You're talking about a team that had made a pair of conference finals, went to the Stanley Cup final one, thought they probably should have gotten there in 2011 as well, 20, the 2011-2012 season. But he looked at that roster and realized, my ceiling isn't high enough for me to continue trading away prospects and first-round draft picks for veterans here. I need to get this cupboard restocked and to build a more well-rounded and more modern hockey team. And he admitted it. He told the public, hey, we're going to be trading some guys you all know and love because we want this team to be better going forward. And the goal is to win a Stanley Cup and building a team that can be the seventh best team in the Eastern Conference, and if Henrik Lundqvist turns into a Super Saiyan, we can make a conference final. That's not a strategy for long-term success. And to his credit, he blew it up. He got assets for Ryan McDonough. He got assets for Rick Nash. He got assets for Matt Zuccarello. He got assets for Kevin Hayes. And while not all of those trades were optimized for return, the Rangers won two of those four trades. I'll say two of the four, maybe, something in that ballpark, and the process won. The Rangers are heading in the right direction now because they admitted it was time to change things, and the Rangers probably would have been better served doing that in 2016 when they got eliminated by the Penguins in the first round. That was the year to change things, to trade out some of your expensive players to get in some younger, less expensive guys. That was the year to retool and to try and give Henrik Lundqvist one last team to make a legitimate Stanley Cup run with, where the 2017 team, the 2016-2017 team probably wouldn't have been as good, but if the Rangers admit after that 2015-2016 season that, hey, we're not that close, we need to change what we're doing here, you could probably make an argument that two years, three years down the road, they're back in the mix. It's not easy to retool, not rebuild, retool where you keep your key contributors. In that case for the Rangers, it would have been Kevin Hayes, it would have been JT Miller, it would have been Ryan McDonough, Henrik Lundqvist, but you trade some of your older guys. You turn Rick Nash into some assets. You turn Matt Zuccarello. You turn Chris Kreider. You turn those guys into assets and you keep your young core that you feel is talented, and you not rebuild, retool. That is something that is hard to do, and it's why you don't see a lot of teams attempt to do it. And 
It's also why you see a lot of teams don't rebuild until a general manager gets replaced. When a general manager gets replaced, a lot of the time it's because things weren't working where they currently were, so the president or the owner had to bring someone else in to start over. If general managers were willing to admit they messed up, they'd buy themselves more time on their own job. And I do really think that. If a general manager of a team that was floating around, that was like ninth, 10th in the division, in the standings in the Eastern, Western Conference, Northern Division, it's different. It's difficult. In my brain, I still think of things in terms of conferences as opposed to the division format. But for example, let's say you are. The Nashville Predators, who are sixth in the Central Division right now, you could get really hot out of nowhere and go on a run and maybe make it to that four spot, but you're looking at a first-round matchup with either the Lightning or the Hurricanes, and both of those teams are significantly better than you. And even if you did somehow pull off that miracle, you're looking at a second-round date with probably the highest seed because... And the other divisions, if you look at the other four seeds, whether you talk about the East, where you're looking at someone like the Flyers or the Penguins, the North Division, where you're looking at Winnipeg, Calgary, maybe, and the Western Division, you're looking at someone like the Wild, Nashville isn't better than any of those teams. Maybe the Wild, if you want to give Nashville a little more credit than they deserve, but Nashville, as they're currently constructed, are not good enough to win a Stanley Cup. David Poyle admitted it, and he waited too long. If he had admitted it a year or two ago, he'd probably buy himself more time. Now, he has to swallow his pride, admit the team isn't good, he gave out too much money to players who didn't deserve it, and start a rebuilding process. And that's not easy to do, because owners and presidents get impatient. Not everybody is like the Rangers where you're going to get some magic luck from the ping pong balls and you're going to pick second and first in consecutive years. You're going to have Artemi Panarin choose you in free agency and you're going to have Adam Fox and Jacob Truba force trades to your team. Nashville is not that kind of team where they can command players' interest just solely based on the team. But the Rangers were not particularly talented when those guys chose to come here or force their way here, but they had some intrinsic interest in coming to play for the Rangers. Nashville doesn't have that kind of thing. Yeah, they drew Matthew Shane there because the guy likes to play acoustic guitar and he likes country music, but it's not on the same tier of guys wanting to come live in New York. And not every team comes to terms with their existential crisis. And obviously when I say existential crisis, I mean in terms of that specific regime, whether it's the general manager, the coach, that core of players, that kind of thing. We're not talking about franchises folding. We're not talking about the Arizona Coyotes. Not yet, at least. If uh, There's more reports out of Arizona. Might have to try to find a Coyotes fan to come talk about that, because that is a particularly unique situation. But, circling back, that an existential crisis of, okay, what the general manager's doing isn't working, what the coach isn't doing isn't working, and what the players are doing is not working. The easiest example of that is the Buffalo Sabres, who are embroiled in a long-term losing streak, have a head coach who came back from a long hiatus from coaching hockey, was spending a lot of time in a front office of a soccer club in Europe, a general manager, who Kevin Adams, who's got not a particularly long resume at that level of the front office, 
an owner in the Pagulas who have not endeared themselves to the fan base. It's not that they haven't been willing to throw money around. I mean, they gave Jack Eichel the long-term extension. They signed Taylor Hall in free agency. They signed Jeff Skinner in free agency. They just have not built a sustainable roster. And for whatever reason, the roster they have is not bad. When you look at it, the names are pretty good. You talk about Eichel, Taylor Hall, Jeff Skinner, Rasmus Dahlin. Even you want to go a tier below that, you talk about Sam Reinhardt, Victor Olofsson. That's a pretty good top six right there. Their bottom six isn't great, but there are decent NHL players there. You talk about the back end. You look at there, you got Dahlin, who's not, who's not been as good as he was supposed to be as a high draft selection in the entry draft, but that's a little bit system. I know Jack Hahn, the former athletic writer, someone who spent some time in the Toronto organization, that he often talks about how he just, uh, he, when I say he, Dalene does not touch the puck enough, and that takes away a strong part of his game, the transition game, where he's able to pass the puck out of trouble, skate the puck out of trouble. They should be making it a point of emphasis to get him the puck more. He's just not doing that. You talk about Kevin Miller, who's a decent defenseman. Brandon Montour, their current time on ice leader by average. Rasmus Ristolainen, who's always been a little bit overrated. General managers like him because he's big. He's never been a particularly good skater. His shot isn't that accurate. The roster isn't horrendous, but the results have been. The Sabres are sitting in dead last in this Eastern Division. They are last in the league at even strength goals, last in the league at 5-on-5 goals, and it's clear something has to change. On Friday, Kevin Adams, their general manager, said he wasn't going to fire Ralph Kruger, their head coach. Maybe not till the end of the season, but he'll probably fire the head coach. He'll probably buy himself time by firing a coach. What do you do then? What's the problem with the roster? Is it the style of play? Are these players talented and the coach just wasn't right? Is there a noticeable gap? Do we not have enough shooters? Do we not have enough playmakers? Do we not have enough puck retrievers? Is it our defense? Do we not have enough transition guys? Do we not have enough guys who can skate the puck out of trouble, pass the puck out of trouble, guys who can force teams to the outside using their reach and their skating ability and their positioning? Do we have enough as we are constructed right now to only need to add a new coach to change our scheme? Will that make us better? If not, you need to legitimately address the possibility of trading a Sam Reinhardt. Or, yes, I'm going to say it, trading Jack Eichel. If you trade Jack Eichel, you should probably trade Sam Reinhardt. You should probably trade Taylor Hall. You should probably trade Rasmus Ristolainen. And full-scale blow it up. I didn't mention Jeff Skinner because Jeff Skinner has a full mill movement. He'd have to waive it to go somewhere else. And not a lot of teams are going to be willing to take a guy who's making $9 million a year. That was always an overpay. Skinner's probably worth closer to seven, seven and a half. All of that said, it is clear Buffalo's roster as it's constructed is not working. Their offense is having a tough go of it. They're shooting in the 5% ballpark historically. The league average for team shooting percentage is somewhere in the 9s, 9-2, 9-3, 9-4, 9, 9 Depends on the given year, but that's generally about where it is. And that's part of this. That because the season is so compressed, because, again, the pandemic, the short season, the Sabres missed about two weeks of the season, so they lost a lot of scheduled off days, 
A lot of their games are compressed where they're going to have back-to-backs. They're going to have two games in three days pretty much the entirety of the rest of the way. And that is a daunting proposition for a team that cannot create offense, that has struggled to find its identity as a team. When I say identity, I, I more or less mean a style of play. They do not create a lot of chances. They concede a lot of chances. They put their goaltenders in difficult positions. And that's only exacerbated by this shortened season. A typical NHL season is 82 games. This year, the teams are playing 56 games. And I said this on Friday when I was talking about the MLB with Chris Schweitzer. You usually have time to work these problems out. In a normal NHL season, about where the Sabres are 21, 22 games into the season, that's a quarter of a way in-ish. You're only in the month of December or so. You have time to work your problems out. Remember, St. Louis Blues were dead last in the NHL in January, the year they won the Stanley Cup. They had time to work their problems out. They brought in a new head coach. They tweaked things around. You don't have that room for error this year, and I think that's part of why you'll see teams wait till the offseason to get rid of their coaches on these teams that are on the margins where a coaching change won't really make that much of a difference over the course of a season in this compressed environment where you have to make these decisions based on extremely small sample sizes. It's difficult. I mean, I personally, if I were Mark Bergevin, I wouldn't have fired Claude Julian, but I understand based on his criteria for what he wanted from his hockey team based on the roster he had, he felt like they should have been playing better and that all they needed was a change in voice in the room, a little bit of maybe a structural change or so. Granted, the person they promoted, Ducharme, is an assistant of Julian's, so probably won't be too dramatic of a structural change, just a little bit of a shot in the arm. A different voice to talk to the guys to get them going, and I am inclined to believe that's the right idea. You want to be willing to take risks when you feel like you are close as a hockey team. Wrapping up here, the last thing I want to touch on is just, I wish front offices, regardless of sport, were just more upfront with their fan bases. I understand that they have an obligation to incentivize people to still come to games, even if the team is bad. And that's why some teams insist they're not rebuilding, even though they clearly are. Because it is harder to sell tickets on the margins. You're always going to have your diehards. It's why it's easier for some teams than others to rebuild. A team like the Rangers would always sell out, even if the team is not good. But your process matters. If your fans feel like you are lying to their face and being disingenuous with the team's intentions... You alienate them, and you frustrate them, and we saw it in the press conference that Jim Benning, the Vancouver Canucks general manager, had over the weekend, where he talked about the state of the team, and that Travis Green, the head coach, was in no danger of being fired, but all it did was piss off the Canuck fans who have a clue that they understand that the problems with the roster were based on Jim Benning's decisions, the, all the money he doled out, the trades he made, whether you want to talk about giving Jay Beagle a free agent contract, Louis Erickson, 
they've got an $11 million a year fourth line right now, and that's just unmanageable. They gave Taylor Myers all that money in free agency. Lying to your fan base in hopes of selling some extra season tickets is short-term smart at the cost of long-term gains. You know what would drive people out to buy more tickets? If the team was good. It's why teams need to be more courageous and just honest that, hey, the team's not going to be good this year, but we're building towards a good team, and we need you to trust us that we're going to draft the right players and trade for the right players and sign the right players. And if you do that, we're going to have a very competitive hockey team, and you're going to want to buy season tickets for that. And that should be your message, regardless of sport. I know I've talked heavily about hockey this episode, but the overarching principle of just being honest with the state of your team, with the general public, it will buy you time, it will buy you credibility, and it will earn you respect in the court of public opinion. There is nothing that drives fans more crazy than an executive going up to a podium and sounding out of his mind, saying that, eh, we don't think they're that far away when, you know, they're on the playoff bubble. We think the goal is to win a World Series, a Stanley Cup, a Lombardi Trophy, a Larry O'Brien Trophy. Yeah, uh, no, it's not, Minnesota Twins. I hate to tell you. It, it's just not. And no matter how many times you say it, it's not going to be true. Being honest with your fans will buy you more credibility, and it will make you more difficult to fire in the long term if your process is right. If you are doing the right things as a general manager, it buys you more time. It's why I don't understand these short-sighted decisions that executives make in these positions of power, where, yeah, this might help you for, like, 20 games, this might help you for a year or two, but that's a seven-year contract. You might get good production out of two of those years, but then you're stuck with a guy for five more years at $9 million a year, and you have no roster flexibility. You have no moves to make. This guy's a no-move clause. We can't get rid of his contract unless he wants to go. And the only kind of teams that can take that kind of money are bad teams. And is someone going to take a trade to a bad team willingly? I don't think so. I don't think the Buffalo Sabres are going to get anyone waving their no-trade clause to go there, to go uh, play with, you know, the coach who's about to get fired, the superstar who's about to demand a trade, the superstar who's about to leave in free agency, all those things. Be honest with your fan base. If you are honest, they will trust you. And that is should be your goal as an executive. Aside from building a good team, you want the public to support you and to believe in what you're doing. If you are making haphazard decisions based on short-term interests, you will flame out. You don't get to be a general manager for a long time in any league if you are constantly burning the bridge to save yourself right now. You don't get to have a good team if you're trading away all your draft picks and you're throwing money at mediocre free agents. It just does not result in a quality hockey team. At a hockey team, football, baseball, basketball, any team, you cannot build an elite team in free agency. The quality of players you need are not there, and you will always end up overpaying them, which will mess up the balance of your salary cap and how you distribute your money amongst your roster. All of that said, I hope everyone enjoyed today's episode. I went pretty long today. 
This was a topic I spent a lot of my Sunday thinking about because I watched a number of games around the NHL. I watched the Devils Bruins. I watched the Rangers and the Penguins, the Islanders and the Sabres, Calgary and Ottawa. watched a little bit of Nashville, Dallas. All these teams fall somewhere into one of those tiers. They're either a legitimate contender, a piece or two away, soggy middle, and then rebuilding, even if they don't want to admit that they're rebuilding. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about just, I don't understand why some teams don't admit what they're doing. I, I think a lot of executives would be better off just admitting that the team isn't playing particularly well and being upfront about the intentions of the front office to build a team going forward. That will earn you time. And that's your goal. You want to have as much time on the job as possible because you are the right person to be making all of these decisions because you know what you're doing. I don't know what tomorrow's episode will be. I will talk to you guys then. See ya.